Good morning. Merry Christmas to you all. I hope you are all doing well, and if you are visiting our church for the first time this morning here in our sanctuary, or if you're watching online for the first time, we want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us here on Christmas morning at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and yeah, today we are gathered together to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the world-changing, history-changing moment that for so many of us has changed the course of our lives, changed the course of our families. And yesterday we had the opportunity at our Christmas Eve service to look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. This morning we're gonna look at it from the perspective of Mary. And as many of you know, the Christmas story starts about 2,000 years ago in a little Jewish town called Nazareth. This place, this time, was not very politically correct. And what I mean by that is, at this time in that nation and in that little town, invoking the name of God publicly, in public places, asking for the blessing of God upon everything in life was expected. It was just a normal part of everyday life for pretty much everybody. But what wasn't so common and not nearly as common as it is today, was for a teenage girl to end up pregnant before she was married. That was scandalous. That was, that was, that was crazy. That didn't happen. And yet, this is the predicament we find Mary in, in the Christmas story. Now, it is a beautiful story, regardless of the challenges that we're going to be talking about today, because it brought us our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now today as believers, we reflect on that beautiful story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as mentioned yesterday, you know, there are so many Christmas songs that we sing throughout this season that have Mary as the focus. And these songs, they speak of her experience. They speak of her wonder. They speak of her blessing and their beautiful Christmas songs to sing as we remember this time. And at the point in history where Mary's, tori- Mary's story is told, We can't forget that at that point in history, God had been silent for 400 years. It had been 400 years with no prophetic messages, 400 years with no miraculous occurrences, 400 years with no angelic visits of any kind, but everything was about to change. Everything was about to change. And after 400 years since the last big event of the Old Testament, The story of Mary opens with an angel from heaven appearing to her. And not just any angel, but one of the big dogs. One of the the powerful angels, the angel Gabriel himself, come down to a very obscure town in northern Galilee called Nazareth to this very poor young Jewish girl where he gave her some news. And this news that she received shook her up quite significantly. It was news that would change her life forever and the lives for millions over the course of history. Today, we're going to look at Christmas from her perspective. We're going to look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Mary, and we're going to see her humility, we're going to see her spirituality, and we're going to see her necessity. All of it to encourage us today that our greatest needs are met. Our greatest needs are always met by the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh 
a baby born into this world to live a life, a perfect life, ultimately to be the atoning sacrifice freely given for us all, granting salvation to all who would call upon the name of Jesus Christ. But before we get into the story this morning, we're going to spend some time celebrating God in worship and praising his name because he is worth it. Of all days today, we want to say, God, you are almighty, you are so great, and we are so grateful that you came to this earth, that you died for us, that you are our salvation, that you are the greatest gift we could ever receive. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we're so grateful, God, that you came to this earth 2,000 years ago. Lord, there are so many details to the story of your birth, God, that, that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through all of it. But today, Lord, we want to start just by praising you, celebrating you, receiving that gift you've offered to us, Lord. So many of us have come to that point in our lives where we received the free gift of salvation. God, through our faith in you, we have been saved, eternally saved, and we're so grateful, God. And Lord, today as we look at the story of of your mom, your mom here on earth, Lord, and, and, and look at what she went through leading up to this moment, this miraculous moment of giving birth to the Messiah. God, that we would be encouraged by her humility and encouraged by her spirituality, encouraged by her recognition of her need a need that only you could fulfill and that you fulfilled for so many of us and that you continue to fulfill for all who would call upon your name. We love you so much. We say happy birthday. We say Merry Christmas. We worship you now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned in our intro this morning, we're gonna be looking at Mary's perspective of the Christmas story and you know, every year she comes up in, in so many different ways as the Christmas season is coming by, and there are many who might go, you know, who, who was Mary? What was her background? What was her story? And, you know, truth be told, we don't know a whole lot about Mary, but we do have a few pieces from Scripture that we can put together. And so if you will join me in Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26 this morning. It says there, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Mary was a very young, very poor teenage girl. Now, if you're a teenager, I hope me calling you young doesn't offend you, okay? But from my perspective, teenagers are young, all right? Now, we know that Mary was, was young and poor because right in this verse, we get a couple details that tell us that. One, it tells us that she was from a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Well, we know from, from archaeology and studies of that nature that, that Nazareth was a very poor working class town, a very blue collar type place where people weren't very wealthy. It was, it was considered a backwater town of its day, and so people who lived there were very poor. We also can surmise and figure out that she was a teenager because it tells us that she's engaged. 
Now, engaged is a, a, a word we use today, but in the day it was called betrothal. It was this official custom, this, this, this contract that was usually set up by parents of children, um, could be as young as 12, as old as 17, where they would be committed or betrothed to marry another individual, and it was this formal process they would go through. But Betrothal typically happened while the kids were teenagers, and so that's why we surmise and understand that, that Mary was a teenager. We're also going to see in the story of Mary that she was a very spiritual person. She was a very on-fire-for-God young person, and that is a wonderful thing to see. You see, God often uses the young to do amazing things in our world, to accomplish mighty things in our world. If you remember, Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. You know, don't let anybody, if you're a young person hearing this message today, don't let anybody despise or dismiss what God can do through you because you're of, of your youth. God can use you to do amazing things, mighty things, world-changing things. And so commit to God and know him that God would use you to, to change lives, to change history even. If you think about the disciples, the 12 disciples that Jesus picked, they were all young fishermen whose lives were changed and then went on to change the world because of Jesus. We also know that Mary was from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of King David, and we get this from genealogies. In the Gospels, we have Matthew has a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and then we have a genealogy in Luke's writing in chapter 3. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details, but the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is understood by most scholars and commentators to be tracing Mary's bloodline. It's the genealogy of Jesus through his mother, his mom. So it's a bloodline genealogy tracing Jesus' line back to King David. Whereas the genealogy we have in Matthew is his adopted father's lineage back to King David, but that's Jesus' legal lineage through his adopted father. And so through those two genealogies, we understand that both of his parents were from the tribe of Judah. And what that just tells us is that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of so many messianic prophecies um, regarding who he was going to be, regarding that he was going to be an offspring and a descendant of King David and the one worthy to sit on the throne of David. But it's an interesting detail because it's not just showing us that he is a biological descendant, a blood descendant of David. He's also the legal descendant of David and the only one who can inherit the throne. We also know that Mary had at least one sister. In John chapter 19, verse 25, it tells us this. It tells us that Mary's sister was also named Mary. So you had Mary Mary in that family. And, uh, you know, Mary was just a common name of the time, a very common name of the time. We also know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also related to the priesthood that existed in Jerusalem at that time through her cousin Elizabeth. Her cousin Elizabeth was married to a man named Zacharias, and he was a priest serving in the temple, and so she had a connection to the priesthood there. But the significant detail, the important detail that the Gospels give us about Mary, about Mary's story, and, it, and it's what sets up all the drama of Christmas for Mary was the fact that she was engaged. That is the detail that the accounts focus on, that she was engaged to this man named Joseph. 
Now, we spoke about Joseph at length yesterday, and if you didn't get to uh, hear that message, it's on YouTube, and so feel free to go back and watch it. Um, But if we know little about Mary, we know even less about the personal and practical details of Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. In fact, we only have one word in the entire New Testament that describes who Joseph was or what he did. And that word is found in two places, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, where he is called a carpenter. That's all we know about Joseph. As far as practical details, he was a carpenter. Now, that word carpenter there, it's, just a, it's a Greek word that simply means builder, right? It was a word, incidentally, often used for stonemasons. And so even though it's rendered carpenter, it's very possible that that Joseph wasn't just a woodworker, but he was also a stonemason working with stone and wood because it was kind of a broad word there. But the picture that we have of Mary and Joseph here is that Jesus' earthly parents were both young, hardworking individuals living poor in this town of Nazareth, but they were happily engaged. That's the detail. They were happily engaged. Now, as I mentioned, that word engaged uh, is the concept of being betrothed, right? Being betrothed in those days was a formal contractual arrangement by parents. I mean, it was, it was very official, very business, right? It was so formal that if you were betrothed to someone, you were engaged. You hadn't even been married yet in the marriage ceremony, but it was such a formal thing that if you wanted to break the engagement, you had to go through a formal divorce ceremony because in those times, being betrothed was just as relevant uh, or just as, as, as enforceable as being married. It carried the same weight as being married is what I'm trying to say. So just because you were only engaged, you were still a committed married person. So it was a big, big deal in those days. And typically, an engagement period would last around 12 months, but there were cases where a couple was, was, was inappropriately young for marriage, and so the betrothal period could last longer. But it was typically a 12-month period where this, the couple would spend time getting to know each other, where the couple who were both intended and expected to be virgins were saving themselves for one another so that during the wedding ceremony at the tail end, when they went into the wedding chamber and consummated the marriage, it was just this beautiful wonderful picture of the intimacy that is intended to be between a husband and a wife. And so during this engagement period, the couple would talk and get to know each other and get their, you know, affairs in order, and they would just get ready for this marriage, this lifetime commitment that they were going to have. But they lived apart during this engagement time, and they had absolutely zero physical contact of any kind. Why? Because sexual intimacy was reserved for the sanctity of marriage. And it is still reserved for the sanctity of marriage in God's eyes, despite what our culture says. So after the engagement time was up, there would be a a wedding ceremony which could last days. And, you know, dads who have daughters, you know, you, you might be happy you don't live in those times because it was a party that could last up to a week and you had to pay for it. And the entire community was invited, so... Good, good thing we don't have to do that today, right? So, but this, this ceremony, which could last days and days and days, would, would finally culminate with the couple retiring into the wedding chamber, and then the union would be consummated. But during this time, during this engagement, during this betrothal time, the couples were watched. 
They were watched by their family. They were watched by the community. They were watched to see if they're maintaining their purity, their commitment to one another, and their commitment to God. So it was during this time of them being watched, verse 28, Luke 1 says, And the angel came to Mary and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Remember, God had been silent for 400 years at this point. No prophecies, no words, no angel sightings of any kind, and yet, poof, here's an angel appearing to Mary. Appearing to this poor, young, insignificant girl in a backwater, insignificant town of Nazareth appearing to her. And so it says that she was deeply troubled. Okay, modern translation, she's freaked out. She's freaked out by this. Not only at seeing an angel, which I think all of us would be deeply troubled if an angel appeared to us, right? Whoa, wow. You know, but then what does he say to her? Greetings, favor woman, the Lord was with you. But it says she was wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Was this a good thing? Or was this a bad thing? Right? You read through the Old Testament, and God appears both ways, doesn't he? Sometimes he would appear to his enemies, and that was not a good thing. And then sometimes he would appear to his people, and it was a good thing. And sometimes he appeared to his people, and it was a bad thing because of what they were doing. So she was concerned. We hadn't heard anything from God for 400 years. And yet now an angel is standing before me, greeting me in the name of the Lord. Verse 30, it says, the angel then told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. That word Jesus is, is the word Yeshua in Hebrew. It's a, it's a name that means the Lord is salvation. So the angel's telling her, look, you're going to get pregnant, you're going to give birth to a baby, and you're going to name him the Lord is salvation. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Now, I think that is the most obvious and understandable question that may have ever been asked in the history of questions. <laughs> You're telling me I'm going to get pregnant. I haven't been with a man. I'm a virgin. In fact, I'm engaged to be married. <laughs> I'm saving myself for my husband. Everybody's watching us. The community's watching us. My parents are watching us. My our friends, everybody's. What, what are you talking about? How can this be? And, and, and she understands biology, which I know is, is a problem in today's scholastic environment, but she understands biology. She understands how pregnancy occurs. And so she's like, how is this going to be? The angel replied to her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. What an incredible moment for this young woman. This young teenage girl from Nazareth being told, and she understood the terminology there, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. You're going to give birth to the Holy One that, that you and your people have been waiting for for generations. You are going to give birth to the one that, that has been prophesied and written about and spoken about. You're the one. What an amazing opportunity. Every 
Jewish girl of the time dreamed of growing up and becoming the mother of the Messiah. It was the, the highest honor that a young Jewish girl could, could, could expect to be the one who gave birth to the Messiah. They knew that's how it was going to happen because that's what the prophecies said. It was the hope of, of every single person that was a Jew that, that one day this, this, this uh, Messiah would come. And so every Jewish girl, as they approached the age of betrothal, which was in their teenage years, and they approached that, that phase of life where marriage is going to happen, they were all dreaming, maybe I will be the one to give birth to the Messiah. And then one day, this angel shows up. Hey, Mary, guess what? Ding, 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 you win. You're going to be the one. Out of all the Jewish girls in history, out of all the women on the earth, you have been chosen. You have been singled out to bring forth the Son of God. Wow. What a big deal, right? What an amazing thing to be told. But as exciting as that was, it created a very difficult scenario for her as her question indicated. How am I going to become pregnant? I've not been with a man. You see, she was engaged, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but according to Deuteronomy chapter 22, the law said that, that if a young woman became pregnant before marriage, it was the death penalty. She would be stoned. And that's not stoned like we think of today, okay? That's big rocks thrown at her until she's dead. That was the penalty for, for getting pregnant before marriage. Why? Well, part of it was because sexual intimacy was sacred, sacred, and reserved for the marriage bed. And so, for her, now it's a difficult situation. You know, when others find out that I'm pregnant, it's, it's going to be scandal. Her life is going to be ruined. Everybody's going to be like, you guys had sex before marriage. You've dishonored your family. You've dishonored God. You've dishonored the community. They're going to call her all kinds of things. You can imagine what words they would use. But they hadn't had sex before marriage. She was pure. She had been saving herself as she was supposed to. But as others were going to accuse her of doing that, Joseph was likely going to say as much defending himself. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. And so thus, the accusations were going to go from sex outside of marriage to you're a cheater. You cheated. You slept with someone who wasn't your husband. Wow, that was going to be a tough situation for her. And then, of course, in Matthew chapter 1, it tells us that when Joseph did indeed find out, he was shocked. He was shocked. How could this be? How could my virgin bride-to-be be pregnant? What does it mean? But as we looked at, he loved her. He loved her very much. He didn't want her to face the death penalty, and so he chose not to publicly shame her. He chose to privately divorce her because, well, I, I, I can't really believe that you're miraculously pregnant by God. Come on, okay, really. So I'm going to privately divorce you. We're just going to separate. Let's go our different ways, and I will be fine. But he came to that after considering all his options. I believe part of that was trying to protect both of their reputations because his reputation was going to be ruined by this. But I believe because he loved her, he didn't want her reputation to be completely radically wrecked, and so private divorce. But before Joseph even knew, and we touched on this yesterday, 
Mary, knowing she had a very difficult situation before her, she needed advice, she needed encouragement, she needed support, and so she ran to the one person who would understand this unexplainable miracle, the miracle of a young virgin teenage girl becoming pregnant by the power of God, and so it tells us in verse 36, the angel says, consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, And this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then I'm skipping 38 right now. I'll come back to it. But then in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Who would believe her? Who would believe her story? The angel Gabriel visited me. Mm, Come on, Mary. You've been drinking a little too much. What's going on? Partying a little too hard? No, really, the angel Gabriel visited me. Who would believe her but the only other woman at this time who had also been visited by the angel Gabriel, who was also told, you're going to have a miracle baby? Who would believe her when she said, I'm going to give birth to the Messiah? but the woman who was told, you're going to give birth to the Messiah's herald. It was Elizabeth, the one who gave birth to John the Baptist. So Mary knew, and she was encouraged by Gabriel, that if anybody would understand and believe this miracle, it would be her cousin Elizabeth. And so she goes to visit Elizabeth, but before she does that, before she goes there to say, okay, how do I deal with the implications? How do I deal with the outcome? How do I deal with the gossip and the slander and the rumor? How do I deal with all of that? Verse 38 tells us Mary's heart. It tells us Mary's humility. Look at what she says there. See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said, and then the angel left her. How amazing is that? Despite everything, she submits herself completely in humility to the will and word of God for her life. You see, part of the Christmas story is understanding what Jesus can do, what Jesus does do. See, how many of us facing a situation like this, where the impossible is being told to us, and then we're called to embrace that impossible thing, knowing that embracing that possible thing is going to ruin our reputation and ruin our life from the worldly perspective, Ladies, what if you were in this position, facing a scenario like that, in a culture that said, if you get pregnant before you're married, we're going to kill you. It's the death penalty. It's such a horrendous thing. And yet, here's an angel of God saying, hey, guess what? Yeah, all that's going to happen. Not the death part, but you are going to get pregnant. And you knew all that was going to come with that. What would we say? What would you say? I think most of us would at least on our best day, negotiate. Well, okay, God, but how about, can I adopt instead? Do I have to go through the pregnancy, right? We would negotiate. At our worst, we flat out say, no, I'm not going to do that. The cost to me is too great. The difficulty is me too great. And so, God, I'm not going to obey you. But she's told, hey, you're pregnant. You've never been with a man. I know it. You know it. But I know you can figure this out. You're not going to be able to hide it. Biologically, your belly grows as the baby grows. But you're going to be able to handle it. 
And she says, yes, may it happen to me as you have said, knowing that for the rest of her life she was going to live with a stigma. For the rest of her life she was going to live with a reputation. If you remember in the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus, even in his adult life, was still being accused as people said, you're the kid born of fornication. I'm going to translate that into modern day terms. Your mom's a whore. That's what Jesus had to deal with his whole life. That's what Mary had to deal with her whole life. And yet, she said, God, if you're calling me to this, I'll do it. If you're calling me to give birth to the Messiah, I'll do it. God, if you want to lay this blessing in my life that's going to come with difficulty, I will do it. Why? Because you're God. You're God, and obeying you is what we're called to do. What an amazing example of humble obedience and trust and faith we have in Mary's Christmas story. And again, considering that every Jewish girl was looking forward to this moment, like every girl wanted to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. Considering that, Mary could have gotten pretty prideful over this, couldn't she? Imagine. She's like, wait, I'm giving birth to the Messiah? I must be pretty special. I mean, gosh, there's something in me that caused God to pick me over every other girl. You all need to bow down to me because I am Mary, the mother of God. I am superior to everyone, right? She could have gone there in her head, but that's not what happened. Mary humbly surrenders, humbly submits. She resolves, she accepts she lays down her life before God, and then, then she goes on to pray this, this beautiful, wonderful prayer of praise. It's a section of Scripture that's called the Magnificent because of how she opens this prayer, and it starts in verse 36. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked, on me with, looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. So she recognizes her condition. She recognizes that, you know, out of all the possible choices, she's probably in the, the lowest part of the choices. In her own mind, from her perspective, there's probably many other young women who are better choices to birth the Messiah. She's saying, I'm a nobody from nowhere, and yet God called me of all people. Do you all realize that every single one of us in this room, every single one of us watching, we're all nobodies from nowhere? And God chooses us. God has chosen us to be his dwelling place for his Holy Spirit to live. God has chosen us to do his work in the world. He has chosen us to shine his light. He has chosen us. If we're honest, we're all going, are you sure about that, Lord? Because I know me. I know it goes through my head. I know the doubts I have. I know the times where, God, I've gotten mad at you and shook my fist and said, I, I don't like you anymore. Lord, I've had times where I even said, I hate you. And yet you still choose me? Yeah, he does. That's how great the gift is. He chooses everyone. And when we come to that place of saying, God, I receive that gift, I'm going to unwrap that gift, I'm going to apply that gift, Man, he steps into our lives, the, the filth of our lives, and he does mighty things. And it's miraculous. It's wondrous that he uses us. 
but he does. Because just like the, 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 the clay in the potter's hands, God is the one who makes something wonderful and miraculous out of our lives. He is the one that, that makes something beautiful out of our lives. We just have to remember to trust him and to follow his will and to walk in obedience and to let him do what he is doing. But she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She goes on, surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. Now you might think, oh, see right there, she's getting prideful. Well, guess what? Everybody in every generation is going to call me blessed. But listen to her words. Listen to who she has given the glory to. The mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. She gets it. She gets it. She says, he's done it, he's done it, he's done it, he's done it. What's my part in the whole process? I'm just the lowly that he's using. She again recognizes her own um, circumstance. She has humility, the humility she has in, in the face of being the one to birth the Messiah. She's hitting on a very important biblical principle, incidentally. And that principle is this, that God exalts the lowly and lowers the prideful. He exalts the lowly, but lowers the prideful. If you think highly of yourself, God has a way of humbling you. And in most cases, I don't think you're gonna like it. But conversely, if you are lowly, if you are humble before God, he has a way of raising you up. God himself, God Almighty, examples this in the birth of Christ, in the life he lived, right? God Almighty came and was born in lowly circumstances. He set aside his divinity. He didn't cease to be God. He just simply tap in, didn't tap into what he could have. He, he lived a lowly life being the creator of everything. But through that humility, he was highly exalted. We know that from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in the mystery of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father exalted the Son because the Son humbled himself by being obedient to the Father and becoming man. And living as a man. And doing the Father's will. He humbled himself. In the picture of our perspective, the son could have been like, Dad, I'm God. I'm not going to go be a man. They're filthy animals. They got problems. Have you seen what they do to each other? But no, he said, I'll go do it. Right? We even see that struggle in the garden. You remember Jesus in the garden? Father, please take this cup from me. There's any other way. It, like, I get the plan, Dad. I, I understand the plan. But if there's any other way... 
Let's vote for that. But what did he say at the end of that? Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's humility. That's the humility we saw in Jesus. It's the humility we see in Mary. It's the humility we saw in Joseph. To step into a situation that would bring great discomfort, great difficulty. But God, if this is what you're calling me to do, I will be obedient. And Mary recognizes that it's God giving her this blessing through his mercy. It's God doing this work. It's not because of her. It's not because she earned it. It's not because she's special. special. (laughs) She says that right there. His mercy is from generation to generation. That God's choosing me is because God chose to choose me. And the mystery of why is in God's domain. And some of us, we wrestle with that. Oh, I'm so bad. God can't choose me. Yes, he can. I'm so horrible. God will never use me. Yes, he will if you submit yourself to him. I've done A, B, C. There's no way. God already knows and he died for it before you were even born. And he says, if you trust me, if you put your faith in me, you'll be forgiven. Your life will be changed. I'll give you a new heart. My spirit, I will live within you. And then, wow, look what we're going to do. But it's receiving that gift. It's humbling ourselves. Verse 49 We see that Mary recognizes and praises God for who he is. She calls him the mighty one and the holy one. You know, again, that just ties into that thing. The bigger your concept of God, the smaller your problems are going to seem before before him and before you. But again, conversely, if your concept of God is small, wow, your problems are going to seem mighty. He is the mighty one, not your problems. He is the mighty one that can do everything and anything. He could accomplish the impossible, Gabriel told Mary. And here is a girl who was just told, you're going to get pregnant. There's going to be a baby growing in your womb despite it being impossible. But what does he say? Nothing's impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And so Mary says, okay, I believe that. I will submit to that despite all the ramifications And as that baby grew in her womb, I believe Mary just believed more and more the mightiness of God. That as she stepped in faith to believe God, her faith that God is mighty just kept growing and kept growing. Verse 53, she says, He has satisfied the hunger with good things, the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So here in this praise that she's erupting and giving to God and just overwhelmed with the the glory of God's decision to choose her of all people, she's now reflecting on God's provision to the lonely. She's like, I'm lonely, lowly, I'm, I'm a nobody. But God takes care of the nobodies. God provides for the humble. That's what the word tells us. To those that believe in God, God takes care of them. She's reflecting on God's faithfulness, remembering the promises he's made to Abraham and the promises to her nation and her people. And the greatest promise that they were all looking forward to was the coming of the Messiah. And she's like, it's, it's happening. It's real. Now, what's interesting here is in this, this prayer, this Magnificent that we're looking at, um, she quotes the Old Testament like 15 different times. 
And, and we don't have time to go through every single one of them. But, but 15 different times she, she directly quotes the Old Testament as she's praying this spontaneous prayer that is just flowing out of her spontaneously. What does that tell us about Mary? She knew the Word of God. She was well acquainted with the Word of God. It was, it was a part of her that it's now flowing out of her spontaneously as she's praising God. And it really teaches us that a character of humility is a fruit of knowing God's word. The more you know God's word, I believe more the fruit of, of, of humbleness grows within you and expresses itself through your life. So Jesus, the truth is, Jesus, the word, the word of God, the word that Mary knows well, that her husband Joseph knew well, the word of God came that we would know him. It's a part of the gift that he is to us. That is why God came and was born in the flesh that you would know him, that he would be a part of your life, that he would be a part of my life, that he would be a part of our life together, that he would flow out from us. He wants us to know him. That was the point of this miracle. He wants us to know him. And then as an integral part of our life, he would just flow out constantly. That we would be people that can just bust out in spontaneous praise and the word of God is just flowing off of our lips. Why? Because we're well acquainted with it. We know his word. We know him. That when we find ourselves in situations and we're like, well, how do I react? We're so well acquainted with the character of our creator that we know exactly how we're supposed to react. We know how we're supposed to help. We know how we're, how we're supposed to serve because we know our shepherd. We know the greatest servant of all. Jesus is the one that said, from the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Does, does the truth of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, does it just flow from your mouth? If it doesn't, don't be ashamed. God's just saying, hey, nudge, nudge. Just get in my word more, that it would be an integral part of your life. Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Why? that your character would be one of humility, ready to receive what God would have for you. And I believe that was why Mary was chosen by God. She had a character of humility already. God knew that he could give this blessing to her and she wouldn't go create a, a social media page saying, praise me, the mother of God, buy my merch. But instead, she was just humbly like, God, I'm just, I'm just so blessed that you would choose me. Now, all of this begins from a place of understanding our great need for him. In verse 46, Mary opened this thing where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she said, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Who needs a Savior? A person in need of saving. That's who needs a Savior. And Mary, by her own admission right here, we see in her own admission, I need saving. I need salvation. She opens this praise by saying, I need salvation. She is overwhelmed that a holy, righteous, transcendent God would condescend to her, poor, teenage, engaged woman from Nazareth, that God would come into her life to bless her, to love her, to show her favor, all in contrast to her own recognized sinfulness. I believe Mary was very aware of her own sinfulness, thus 
or else she would not have said, God is my Savior. I magnify him. My spirit rejoices in him, my Savior. But in that, she's also recognizing not just her own sinfulness, but God's innate holiness, God's perfection. And, and so must we all. We all have to be people that recognize, recognize God's innate holiness. And in recognizing God's innate holiness, we also then recognize our own lack of holiness. We recognize that God condescends to us in the same love to give us the same blessings and the same favor, and that is Christmas. That God lowered himself to the form of a man, to live as a man, that he would identify with us in every way, that he would then be the atoning sacrifice on the cross for all of our sins, the sins we can't stop doing, the sins we could do nothing about, that we would have the opportunity to have a restored relationship with our Creator. What a wonderful gift that is. The Bible tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in the presence of the perfect one, she says, whatever you want, Lord, let it be done. I'll lay down my life for you. I'll give my life to you. I am lowly, yet I have received your mercy. It is you who has blessed. It is you who has done great things for me. God, I am yours. Now, Christmas is about Jesus, right? I know we've spent a lot of time looking at Mary. Yesterday, we spent a lot of time looking at Joseph. And the point is, is what this man who was God, Jesus, did in their lives even before he was born. The effect he's having on their life. Highlighting the the character traits that were in them that are good character traits that God wants in his people. Highlighting the the response that they made to this news that was really going to wreck their lives in a lot of ways. And that they said, no, 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 We, we, we believe in God. We trust God. We follow God. And so despite what God is calling us to do and putting before us, we're going to step into it. Mary may have got there a little quicker than Joseph. That's okay. Some people always say, well, the guys are a little, you know, okay, whatever. But every person that gets there and gets it are the ones that God is going to pour out his blessing upon. And so Christmas, it's about Jesus. It's about God coming to the flesh that we might know him personally, knowing that he fully identifies with us in our struggles and our sin, but also knowing that, that our full reconciliation to our creator comes ultimately and came ultimately with his death on the cross. You see, a lot of people want to stop at the birth of Jesus. Oh, baby Jesus, how fun. But they don't want to carry the story all the way through to Easter. They don't want to carry the reality all the way through of why was this cute little baby born? so that he could die for you, so that he could be the atoning sacrifice for your sin, being the only perfect and spotless and blameless atoning sacrifice, the only possible sacrifice that would fully satisfy the justice of God. That is who Jesus is. The the arrival of that Jesus is what we celebrate in Christmas. You know, there's a pretty famous song, sung during Christmas season, and I mentioned it yesterday. It's a song that says, it's entitled, Mary, Did You Know? Right, And the first stanza of the song says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? 
Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? The child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Did she know? I think she did. I think she did. I'm pretty sure she did. The question for us today is, do you know? Do you know that that baby boy came to save you? Do you know that he came to set you free from sin? Do you recognize that you need a Savior because you have sinned against a holy God? I believe Mary knew that. And if it was true for Mary, my goodness, it's true for every single one of us that we need a Savior. And Christmas is about that Savior being born. But because we need to know about Jesus, or because what we need to know about Jesus um, in, in the Christmas story wraps around that whole concept that it wasn't just about gifts, it was about salvation. What we need to know about Jesus during Christmas and every day is that he is so much more than just a baby in the manger. That he is God Almighty, the Savior of our souls. that silent night when the stars turned their gaze to marvel at the earth when the heavens gathered breathless round a lowly stable when a young mother wept tears of worship falling on the baby in her arms and the song of the earth arose in Bethlehem soft as the tender beating of his heart and all was calm all was bright yet could this be the same god of abraham the conqueror of israel this baby this fragile life is this child the one who burned his name in rapture across the gasping skies whose voice spoke the oceans into crashing rhythms, who crafted the mountains into guardians of the firmament, whose hand ignited the thirst of the deserts and the warring surge of the elemental hosts, who breathed life from dust, broke the oppressor's rule, scattered the chains of his people like sand, and led them through the wilderness with the pillar of flame. Is this child the one whose presence billowed thunderous on Sinai's peak? Who surrounded Job with the roaring wind, stood defiant in the raging furnace, wrote judgment against tyrants, and blazed on the lips of the prophets, scorching history's pages with the fury of his might? Could this be the same God who chose to come as the vulnerable king? setting his throne on straw and manger, drawing forth the tears of shepherds, receiving the gifts of wandering travelers, his fame unknown in this world. He is Jesus, the one who thunders through the heavens 
yet whispers to our hearts, who reigns victorious, yet bows to serve the broken. He is God in the fury, God in the silence. He holds this mystery balanced in his hands, holds our questions till they lose their need, until all we see is him. We need a savior, and we need his mercy, and we need his grace, and he is Jesus, God Almighty. And today we celebrate the fulfillment of that promise that was given to Mary, the free gift given of God for us. Today we celebrate the truth told by the angel to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Where it said, today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And with that, Mary's first Christmas became the fulfillment of the hope of all mankind for all time. And he could be your hope. He could be your Savior. He could be your grace, your mercy. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today, all you have to do is receive the free gift that is freely given. He already died on the cross. He already lived that life 2,000 years ago. Today, he sits at the right hand of the Father and says, believe in me. Receive the salvation that I came to give to you. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I receive that. I believe in who you are. I know I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Come into my life as you came into Mary's life. Come into my life as you came into Joseph's life. Come into my life as you entered into this world to do a mighty work of healing and salvation. And he will do that. The Bible promises all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. I pray you receive that gift today. And in that, you have the most merry of Christmases that you've ever had. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. God, we know it takes a humility to come before you and to say, you are God. That although you entered this world in the most helpless of ways, being born of the Virgin Mary, God, born of a young teenage girl who had not been with a man. And yet, Lord, as the power of God overshadowed her, she found herself with child. And then, Lord, she was born into this world. You were born into this world in a manger, in a feeding trough. Lord, that you were raised in, in, in very poor conditions, but with such great love from your parents that you grew in stature as a man, you learned as a man. And then God, one day as you entered into your ministry, you walked this earth healing, bringing hope, preaching salvation. And then Lord, you died on the cross. A horrible and gruesome death, God. But you did it willingly. 
Lord, you did it with joy set before you, God, that we would be saved. Lord, what a gift that is, and it's a gift we can never, ever possibly earn. But is it a gift you give us simply through faith? And so, Lord, I pray, God, that as we learn from the example of your mother, that we see her humble state. We see that she was a woman who who knew you, knew your word. But most importantly, she was a woman who recognized her need for a Savior. That, God, we would learn from that example this Christmas. And that we would recognize our own lowliness and our own humility and our own need for you, God. So that we wouldn't push you aside this Christmas for decorations and gifts and celebrations. Lord, all those are great things. But we would keep you at the center. That baby who was wrapped tightly in a cloth lying in a manger, who grew as a man, who died for us as the atoning sacrifice. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you, and we praise your holy name, God. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in our church. Be glorified in our world, God. And we pray for all those who don't yet know you, that they would come to know you and experience the hope and the mercy and the grace and the blessing that is in you, God. Thank you for loving us so much that you came to this earth. Thank you for loving us so much that you died for us. We love you. Happy birthday, Lord. Merry Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.